0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Goiko Ajic. Based in London, Goiko is a partner at Nuri Consulting, a strategic software delivery consulting company that helps organizations big and small improve their product and project management practices in order to develop and deliver their products better and faster. A popular and busy conference keynote speaker, he has won many awards in his career, including the 2016 European Software Testing Outstanding Achievement Award and the Jolt Award for the Best Book of 2012 for his book, Specification by Example. You can follow him on Twitter at Goiko Adjic, and you can read his blog and learn more about him and his work on his website, Goiko.net. He's the author or co-author of a number of LeanPub books, including the charmingly titled Humans vs. Computers, and his latest book, Running Serverless, Introduction to AWS Lambda and the Serverless Application Model. In this interview, we're going to talk about his background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author. So thank you for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. Um,
0: I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and software.
1: So I grew up in Serbia. I come from Serbia and um, my father bought a Commodore 64 when I was a kid. I think my mother would have divorced him if he bought it for himself. So he officially bought it for me. But... I was the only kid in the neighborhood that had a computer where I couldn't really play any games because he bought it for himself to kind of program. He was a geek. So he didn't buy a tape recorder um, and I couldn't load up any games. And what I did is I had this thingy that is supposed to be mine. Um, And I had a big manual in German. I didn't speak a word of German, but there were lots of pokes and things like that. I could type and make the computer go or, you know, move some colors on the screen and things like that. So I I started, you know, software development by, um, I don't know, typing over assembly lines that I had no understanding of. From a book I couldn't really read um, on a Commodore 64 when I was yeah six or seven years old.
0: Well, that's a that's a great story. Um, uh, yeah, I was I always like to find out it, it's it's so it's so interesting how it's often a parent introducing a computer into the into the scene, uh, and sometimes it's for the kid and sometimes it's for it's for the parent. Um, and
1: yeah, I I guess yeah, my dad my dad was an electrical engineer. He did um these um he he was putting electricity into factories and you know dealing with, um, I, I don't even know what the proper English phrase for that is, but like high voltage um, electricity transport. But he, yeah, he was a geek. He was interested in computers. And um, yeah, well, I guess I grew up pretty much never wanting to do anything else apart from programming.
0: And yeah, so that that actually leads me to my next, next question. So you studied um, a combination, I believe, of maths and computer science at university. Mm. Um, and one question I'd like to ask uh, guests on this podcast is: if if you were starting out now with the intention of pursuing a career uh, like 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 yours, uh, would you do a full computer science degree at university and starting in twenty
1: nineteen? Um, I, I guess there is a. Um... Aspect to having a proper computer science degree that gives or at least gave me a background on some things that are incredibly useful in terms of modeling things and understanding stuff. Um, I I took a mix, as as you said, of maths and computer science. So we did at our university lots of stuff from algebra and lots of stuff from the the theory of computability, lambda calculus and and graph theory and things like that. Almost none of it was ever... Commercially important for me, but I think it gave me a background in modeling and, and understanding how, you know, to, to understand machines and how to deal with that. And um, I think for me personally, high school was a lot more valuable uh, for programming than um, university because I went to a specialist high school uh, where we studied... Pascal in the first year, C in the second year. I had assembly and C++ and um, Prologue or in my third year. And in my fourth year, I kind of, I think, had assembly again and, and more kind of advanced stuff. So I had, I had the um, fantastic benefit of going to this high school where it was really, you know, very, very tightly specialized for science and kind of t- technology science in particular. So I, I went to a um, section where we were doing programming quite a lot. So it, when I arrived at the university, first two years of my university, pretty much I learned in high school. Um, yeah. And so I think that that that, that school was um, a much, much bigger impact, I think, on, on what I did than the university. I mostly enrolled at the university because... Serbia still had a mandatory conscription back then. And when I was growing up, going to military service wasn't really the safest option for this part of the world. Um, So, yeah, I I went to the university, but um, I'm not entirely sure if I would do that again. That's quite a good question, I think. There are benefits in terms of getting this kind of scientific background of the whole thing, and I think it makes it easier to you know deal with some more complex things but have I ever used it professionally probably not
0: yeah that 's actually a really a really interesting um, issue um, that you raise, uh, which is you know there's i was um Reminds me one time I was in an airport and I heard this, you know, this, these obviously strangers to each other just having a nice conversation. And this one girl was saying, you know, or woman was saying, you know, now I work in construction, but I got a degree in I don't know, education or something like that. And she said, you know, I've never used it. And it's, uh, I've never used my, my degree and what I learned. And I thought, you know, I've, I've heard this before from like, you know, I, I remember hearing a, a professor talk about how he, you know, he didn't think that people should have to learn uh, other languages to get PhDs anymore, Uh, This was in English literature context, uh, because he'd learned Latin, but he'd never used it. And I thought, you know, like, I don't, it's kind of like, how do you know what you're going to need in advance? And and how do you know what you've used or not, if you know what I mean? You know, because even, even things you'd sort of like, you kind of know not to use them, if you know what I mean, once you know them.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I look, that's this was, I, I, you know, I studied lambda calculus from kind of the mathematical perspective. So, when I was starting to get interested into functional programming, I mean, kind of I knew, you know, I already knew what what it's all about and what the benefits are and things like that. And I, I enjoyed um, I, I learning a lot of that other stuff from a theoretical perspective. I, you know, like nonlinear geometry where. Parallel lines are not lines; they're circles and things. That was amazingly interesting, but it wasn't, you know, entirely uh, applicable to my career. I had one case, maybe 17 or 18 years ago, when I actually used stuff I, I learned from the university. and actually used my textbooks from the university to, to, you know, solve a problem. I was working on a energy trading system where. We were trying to help these traders optimize reporting for transit. Um, electrical energy kind of flows whenever laws of physics tell it to flow. Uh, but for trading purposes, a trader in one country can sell electricity to a trader in another country. That you know, and, and if you sell some, you know, from, I don't know... Uh, Canada to Mexico it has to flow through the US but in Europe there's a lot more choice where it flows so th- there's this abstraction where you can say look I'm selling electricity from Britain and I'm selling it to I don't know Holland and it's going through this country as a transit there's nothing to do with where the physics is going to tell it to go but there's a you know so what they can do is they can report any reasonable route uh, as 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 where it goes and different countries charge different things for that so selling and buying lots of this stuff uh the traders were manually kind of reporting where the sales are going and paying different uh transit networks fees and they wanted to have this software that does it for them and you know i finally had the chance to do some of that so there was a lot of this graph theory we did a lot of it we we spent two months um working on this optimization thing and as a way of testing it whether it makes sense i remember spending about one hour just kind of plotting it visually so we can test it you know does it does it actually make sense and then about 10 minutes before we were going to demo this i realized okay this kind of visual plot kind of looks good so why don't i put this on a map of europe instead of just you know a generic Kind of, you know, matrix and I put this on a map of Europe and I remember kind of showing it to them and and explaining this algorithm and everything. And then when I clicked the button, this thing ran and on the screen on the bottom was a spreadsheet that was, you know, optimized and on the top was this graph of Europe. And everybody jumped and said, Oh, this is amazing, you know, and so thought they were talking about the algorithm and said, No, 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 the map. And You know, we we could have just not done the algorithm at all. We could have plotted their own stuff on on the map. So I I think it is incredibly exciting to use kind of complex maths and complex models. But that's not what most of the industry does, especially not what most like my, my experience is.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You you thanks for that great that great story. Um, the uh, you were reminding me. So um, uh, there's just a, a bit of a coincidence there. But you know, when it comes to the, the practicality of what you learn, you know, like largely, especially when you're very when you're very young, those decisions are often kind of made for you, and the only context you have is the context around you. And so, where I grew up, I was we were talking a bit before this, um, we started recording this conversation. But I grew up in Southern Saskatchewan, and you know, when I declared that I was going to major in English, everyone around me was like, what an impractical decision. What are you ever going to do with that? And the answer was, well, I'm going to go to the University of Oxford and get a doctorate in English literature. And then I'm going to become an investment banker in London. And I'm going to do mergers and acquisitions in European utilities, including with electric, you know, big electric companies. Uh, Because, you know, the the kind of knowledge that you acquire, being able to structure things spontaneously and communicate persuasively, uh, actually has a generalized applicability uh, yeah, yeah. across, across all sectors, but, but so I guess it's just a long like, you know, your story and then my story, this long ways around of saying that, like, sort of narrowly construed judgments about what's practical can often be ways of kind of keeping yourself back. Uh, and, Absolutely. And, and, and closing off opportunities from yourself. Uh, and and it's, it's a bit of a paradox because, you know, you only have limited time and only, you only have limited attention and you only have one life to live. So you do have to make decisions based on limited invita- information, but you have to sort of leave an openness with respect to, you know, your own ignorance um, at the same time
1: uh when, yeah, you know, opening opening up options is 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 really really important. you never really know when one of these options is going to pay off or not i mean and you know the, the you were talking about um publishing and things that and, and my route into publishing was uh quite a serendipitous one where as um I was at the university um, i as a way of getting some extra cash, I started writing articles for local computer magazines and it was you know, a nice and easy way to learn some extra money and they were taking programming articles. I started with programming articles and then I realized, you know, there's only, because there were only two or three computer magazines in Serbia when I was a kid uh, and they have to be relatively generalistic. So there's only one or two pages they can publish in programming, but they can publish lots more stuff about other things as well. So then I started writing about other things as well and uh, that led me to actually then um, that the company that was publishing the magazine was also publishing book translations in books and they needed technical editors that would kind of fix up other people's translations because you get somebody to translate they know the language but they don't know the Linux system internals so they don't know if they translated it well or not and <clears throat> I yeah I, I, I had lots and lots of kind of interests so I started getting books to uh, edit on anything from... Uh, the the old front page Microsoft uh, HTML editor to Linux system administration to hacking to programming, all sorts of different languages. And that got me to read a ton of books that were just coming out. And that's how I I read Extreme Programming Explained. Uh, Probably the first person in Serbia to ever read that (laughs) Um, and you know, I got, really got interested in unit testing. Then kind of all of it kind of somehow leaves breadcrumbs and leaves some you know knowledge in the back of your head that comes back to stuff. And you know, in retrospect, it all has a thread. But you know, would would I know that that's the kind of thread that would build? Probably not. And um, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, you've, you've got a you've got a. To really interesting story. Um, and I wanted to actually touch on something. Uh, you, you, you mentioned um, where you grew up wasn't necessarily the safest place. Uh, and you also mentioned the map of Europe. And so one of the one of the pleasures of this podcast is that we get to interview authors from all around the world um, and ask them about things they may have firsthand knowledge or experience of that the rest of us only know from books in the news. Uh, and so I, I couldn't help but notice when I was researching for this interview and, you know, checking out your profile on LinkedIn that you were studying at the University of Belgrade during the 1999 NATO bombings. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I know like this could be, you know, hours and hours and hours. We don't need to, we don't need to do that. But uh, I mean, were you in Belgrade Were well, you're in Belgrade right now? Uh, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, were you there during, during the bombings? Yeah, 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 yeah. And what was, if you're willing to talk about it, what was, what was your experience of like of that, like, I mean, you know, did, did people. I,
1: I don't know, kind of, you know, it was. Uh, when I look at it now, when I try to remember it now, it's like I was watching a movie. Hmm. I do, like, it wasn't happening to me, I guess. You know, partially I couldn't believe what was happening, and partially, I guess, um, probably didn't really care what's going to happen because there wasn't much I could, I could really do about that. So I, I remember kind of feeling that, you know, there's nothing I can really do about that, so if it's going to kind of end up badly, it's going to end up badly. It was more, more kind of I guess I was worried more about practical stuff because I remembered um, the, uh, you know, we had quite a big inflation um, just around that time as well, and um, I wasn't able to earn any money because everything was closed for in effect, what, three years, Four months, nothing really worked. Um, And, yeah, it was kind of a weird period. I guess the whole country ground to halt for four months or so. But at the same time, you know, we we were relatively close to um, places where it was much, much, much worse. Like, civil war never really reached Belgrade, where, you know, just two hours driving from there people were killing each other with tanks and shooting snipers at each other so as you know we were being bombed it was fairly i will not say safe but it wasn't you know as bad as 200 kilometers away so I guess that there was a comparison there that it's you know not horribly bad it's bad but you're kind of probably going to survive.
0: And uh, I'm I'm just very curious. Did um, you know, just to generalize, did the people blame Milosevic for what was going on, or the West? I mean, specifically with respect to the yeah,
1: I, I don't know, like, you I know, know the, there's, the- there's a horribly divisive that's a horribly divisive political question, I guess you know, uh, and and people were voting Milosevic in for you know years and years and years. So there's part of a country that's trusted him part of the country didn't I personally uh, you know blamed him for a lot of bad stuff um, but um, yeah I guess uh, yeah it was probably his fault mostly I think you know there, there was a, there was a quite a popular theory back then and I think still there is some some truth to it as well that you know Bill Clinton, Kind of did the whole thing to, uh, you know, take some news away from Monica Lewinsky scandal and things like that. And that that was the story that was at least sold here in the media about that.
0: Oh, that's really interesting because the 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 Clinton-related narrative that I am familiar with around that is that it was um, because of the fail the U.S. failure to act on Rwanda.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, you know, like, history is really interesting. I, I was reading this book called The Balkans by a guy called Misha Glenny, who's a British journalist, and he wrote the Balkan history, but from a British perspective and from British historical sources. And, you know, it covers, like, a, maybe 200-year period from from start the Ottoman Empire starting to fall apart until late 90s. And a lot of the stuff that he writes about, you know, we didn't learn in the book, so we learned in the books completely differently. So I guess there is a, you know very big territorial uh, question where you learn history from. And, and uh, wh- whether it's, you know, uh, a failure of Rwanda or a failure to stop local civil wars or whether it's, you know, somebody's uh, sex life, there, there always is a, you know, um, not, not necessarily a causal relationship, I guess. Even, you know, when we look at, Software organizations today and, and people claim, oh, do this, it's going to be really great and things like that. You know, even on, on, on a system of a couple of hundred people, cause and relationship is very, very difficult to establish. It's, Establishing it's, cause and relationship in history is, is almost impossible.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll, get, we'll be talking a bit about your your work um, uh, sure. as a consultant, pretty pretty briefly. I just wanted it's it's funny the coincidence. I just recently, uh, when you talk about the perspective and history, um, and which, which particularly with respect to the Balkans, I just finished watching a Great Courses Plus course on the Barbarians of the Steppes, which is uh, you know from the British perspective and like even from the sort of European perspective, the Huns came out of nowhere. But of course, they didn't come out of nowhere, uh, and and this 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 great lecture series sort of sometimes visualizes, uh, basically Europe and Asia from the North looking to the South, because this is the way that the Huns looked at it. Uh, and, um, uh, and, you know, when you, when you start, you sort of seeing things from this completely different civilizational perspective, uh, a lot of, a lot of things that are inexplicable start to make a little, a little bit more sense. But as you say, you know, telling causal stories about these grand historical things is really, you know, uh,
1: there, there's, there's, a, there's a lovely there's a lovely book here there's a lovely book that verges on on comedy called the hinge factor I don't know if you came across that No. Um, it's uh, uh, the, the uh, yeah it's I, I don't even know if, if kind of the author wanted to portray it as a serious history book but it covers lots and lots of examples of, of history where um, there was a tiny influential factor that caused, you know, a massive, massive historical change. So, and and that's kind of, you know, trying to establish cause and relationship in something like that becomes really difficult. So one of the stories they have in the book is how there was a charge of uh, kind of the uh, French Napoleonic army against the British army at Waterloo or something like that, where they overran the cannons, but the British killed... All the uh, cavalrymen that were carrying nails to nail down into the cannons to kind of disable the cannons, because what they would do apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, is a cavalry would charge the kind of cannon battery and then some of those cavalrymen would carry nails, they would nail the part of the cannon where you light the fuse and they would disable the cannon and you know as 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 this charge completed enough of these nail carrying cavalrymen were killed so they couldn't disable the cannons and then, they, they you know as as a result the british won and, and tried, you know just trying to establish cause and relationship in something like this just completely ridiculous and um yeah yes. so whether i i you know there's probably not a, just a single factor that led to uh the bombing or you know the the whole civil wars or whatever it's it's very very difficult to establish that and that's where um you know tr- trying to un- untangle places where there's a lot of history is really difficult
0: yeah yeah well we can we can try and untangle your history a little bit uh, yeah, okay okay. Um, uh, maybe we can have more detail on that uh, but um so you uh you said you were writing articles I believe that was for pc world um
1: yeah there was uh, there was there were a couple of magazines here there was a uh, edition of uh, that like the global pc world for for Serbia I actually ended up being a editor in chief there for for two years at the end um I was yeah also contributing articles to a bunch of other magazines actually kind of Contributed articles to popular culture magazines, not just software magazines, because it was easy money. And I, I figured, you know, I figured somehow I could write. I think my my uh, Serbian language teacher and literature teachers would probably commit suicide if they knew I was making money on writing, um, uh, because uh, I was I was never get never had really good grades um, in anything that wasn't science related. Part of going to a high school that was specialized in science was you could literally ignore all the other subjects because the school prided itself on having a very high grade average, which meant that if you had any awards on any competitions at all, you could not get less than a C grade officially for 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 kind of any other thing. So subjects like psychology, geography, language... I. Pretty much did a denial of service there, <laughs> but I still got a passing grade because I knew they couldn't fail me.
0: Uh, that's that's really interesting. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Um, uh, because it, it's it's just surprising to me to hear to hear that you, your books are so well written. To hear that you know uh, you were getting bad grades in related subjects like like that is 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 sort of interesting <laughs> to to learn. Um. Uh. And and so uh, you. I'm not exactly sure, but you, you ended up either living in London or working in London for... A-
1: yeah, yeah, I moved to London. I moved to London in 2005 from, from Belgrade. Um, kind of, yeah, there was um, much, much easier to make a living in London than, than to kind of earn money in Serbia around that time. And I kind of wanted to go where good software is produced. Serbia was then and still is very much a outsourcing software country there's a few local products but most of the software done here is uh, as as means of making it cheaper not better and I'm quite passionate about you know high quality stuff not cheap crap. so
0: and and you ended up uh Oh, well, actually, I have one question. So, uh, as someone who moved to London myself at one point, um, uh, how did you adapt to life to life there? Did you just fit? Oh, in? I
1: loved yeah. it. Yeah, I I, I fitted yeah. it. I, I loved it. It's yeah. I uh, kind of. I think the, the 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 working culture there is is amazing, and I think the love yeah. Lifestyle there is is very very busy. Um, I remembered my shock of you know seeing a river of people coming out of the central line the first time I saw that. Yeah, it's it's um, it is a country on its own effectively.
0: Yeah, and and just, yeah. just just ask a very specific question. So where did you where did you live when you first moved there? Because that can make it- I,
1: I lived. I, I you know I made a mistake of thinking about London as a Central European city. So I thought you know go and live in the center because that's where things are, so I, I used to live near Malibon, that's kind of a slightly northern part of Westminster, but still zone one, where the, the the nice thing about that was I was able to walk to work, which, you know, I wasn't able to do later, but the bad thing about that is literally kind of Friday after 5 p.m. nothing is there. Um, but um yeah so i used to live there then we moved to um slightly more west we we lived in Putney, uh or just across Putney bridge in fulham then we moved to Barnes. so kind of more or less western area of london later okay
0: okay uh and and you ended up working for the company that you work for now um how did you uh nuri how did you end up with them
1: no, that's my company. I started. Oh, that. you started it? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I started that. Uh, that. That's my company. So I, I started it when I um, kind of when I was in Serbia. I was doing outsourcing gigs as well, and then when I moved to London, I took some of those gigs with me, but I also kind of um, started working for another company there full time, and then. Um, kind of did outsourcing stuff part-time, then I kind of quit the full-time job because I I realized I kind of, I've never really been a full-time, a good full-time employee. That's just not me. And I wanted to do more kind of shorter-term gigs and and more consulting. So then I kind of, yeah, spent about two years, I think, or a, a year, and a half trying to be an employee and then decided they're just not for me it's really interesting. and yeah, the, the, basically just yeah continue continued growing the the other company and then um the, the the company is now a partnership uh, three other people joined the company at various different points so now there's kind of four of us effectively as, as partners in the company
0: and I think uh, one of the things that um, uh, a lot of people who are sort of thinking of you know uh, breaking out on their own uh, who I think a lot a lot a lot of people actually feel the same way about being a full-time employee. Uh, how do you go when you started out? How did you go about getting clients?
1: Uh, conferences, I think. Co- hmm. Conferences are a. a so, but again, you know, we're, we're talking about different threads. So one of the really interesting threads there is that, as as I was writing these articles um, for magazines and things like that, and I, you know, when I became an editor, I started actually getting a lot of gigs. Hmm for programming from that because I, I, you know, got to know people, people got to know me and then I realized when I moved to the UK, well, you know, I, I in Serbia, I, I had a reputation, I had a name, it's a small market, everybody knows everybody, or at least it was a small market back then. Um, but when I moved to England, I kind of literally didn't know anybody professionally. So I, I realized I have to, you know find connections. So I started going to lots of meetups. I started going to lots of conferences, started speaking at meetups and conferences. And I think that's probably the best way of getting, uh, contacts and getting clients that I can kind of recommend early on, you know, books helped because a book, I, a book for me is a, you know, 250 page business card. Um, but uh, the books help, uh, but a book is a much, much bigger investment, and a book requires a, a relatively narrow topic. Going to user groups going to meetups is a low risk low budget way of getting to know lots of people. Speaking at meetups is a very really low low risk thing you know it's you don't have to prepare a fantastic keynote, you just have to have a topic you want to talk about and I think um. That, that, that's a amazingly good benefit of London where there was something happening almost every night. And there was a, you know, around that, that time in London, there was an amazing, amazing, amazing group of people evolving Agile and evolving what later became kind of, you know, the, the London School of TDD, like Steve Freeman and Matt Price, evolving a lot of these kind of behavior-driven ideas like Danone. And, and Chris Matz and Alice Keo and uh, kind of... <clears throat> they, they lots of people working around, kind of testing around that time and and like Anthony Marcano. So for me, you know, effectively fresh off the boat, it was amazing to be able to mingle with those people and, and to be able to learn from them and, you know, synthesize my own ideas from their ideas. And I, yeah, that that's kind of the... An amazing benefit of being in a big hub is is being able to experience that and participate in that experience. And I think I really caught a very interesting period of software development history or software development industry around that time because the whole agile thing was exploding on the scene and it helped me kind of a lot as well.
0: That's really interesting, actually. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I was one of my questions was going to be, how did you get into the whole agile and sort of uh, you said TDD, so test driven development. Mm. For those who might not know, and and it's so interesting to hear that it was from uh, community. Uh, people so often think of you know the you know sort of programming and software as being this sort of is- an inherently isolated thing where people mm. are forced together in offices and stuff like that. But but what you're describing is that there was this kind of thriving community. Uh, of people kind of you know talking with each other and and this is how, absolutely this is how yeah I'm yeah not interested in it that's really
1: yeah I, I you know like you know all all those things you you hear a lot of these ideas you you hear complementary ideas you hear people's experiences and, and things like that so I, I kind of the, the whole Agile thing for me happened I guess I, I um, when I was still in Belgrade when uh, you know to, early two thousand ten I was. Working on on outsourcing, I I kind of got to the point where I was on the um, entry point of the money. What I mean by that is the way outsourcing was done back then is through about, I don't know, five to 10 intermediaries where there's somebody in the West that wants some software done, they know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows a couple of programmers somewhere. You know, it wasn't, we we were not doing the industrial outsourcing that you get from hiring 300 people somewhere. Most teams here were two, five, 10 people teams. Um, So the gigs were smaller, but I, I found out that at the point where we were getting paid something like $5 an hour, if I remember correctly, you know, the first guy was paying the second guy almost 150 in that chain. Right.
0: So yeah, so, so just just to be clear, so you're talking about how there's basically companies say located in London are outsourcing programming to places like Belgrade. And
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and there's uh, like so, ten five five or ten intermediaries between. And you know the first first link of that chain is paying something like a hundred dollars an hour or hundred and fifty dollars an hour and we are getting five. Mm-hmm. And it was just completely ridiculous I, I i realized you know I have to skip at least a couple of these levels to 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 make some decent money so i was i managed to get myself into the point where I was actually talking to the people who who were um you know on the other side of the border and um the um, at that point i was responsible for converting some of the fixed amount of money into something that was a variable amount of time and money so I was responsible for getting the thing out so it doesn't come back because we were giving people not necessarily just time and material codes we were giving people a fixed amount of money that's what they wanted to get quotes but then I had to get it out and if it's broken I have to fix it and I have to pay people to fix it so the whole idea of you know high quality software that's has to meet customers' demands and and not not just what they wanted, but what they actually need is, you know, really, really important. So um, automated testing and and, and a way of kind of, you know, uh, not just automated, but learning how to test manually and automating the stuff that can be automated was really, really important because we couldn't afford to, you know, waste our time doing that. And that's how I got interested in the whole kind of unit testing thing from test automation. I I kind of read Kent Beck's book very early on and Ron Jeffrey's book on on unit testing very early on and Gerard Mezeros' book. So kind of technically, I I knew how to do that kind of stuff even before I came to London. But what I learned from the community was the whole human aspect of that and, and how to drive it through teams and how that's, you know, there's a lot more to just technically designing a good test. There's kind of figuring out what you want to test and I got into the whole Agile thing from the testing side of things but then you know as as I was part of a, a very small probably insignificant part of that community I you know they, they were discovering lots of interesting things um, around 2005 2006 people were still figuring out how do they how do they integrate testers and developers together how do they you know and then product management came along and and how to do you know business analysis in Agile and things like that people are still figuring out those things in, in you know mid two thousands.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Uh, the um uh it's, it the, the way that like the, the issues that you deal with in your career and in your writing and in your books are sort of like there's this this interesting sort of connection between the high and the low, I guess. So it's it's really it's really it's really hard to kind of focus in because you know there's but but I'll I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it a try by quoting you back at yourself. Um, uh, and maybe moving on to the next part of the, the interview where we talk about about your books uh, and your projects. Um, so, you, you've written, and I'll, I'll just, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I'll quote it here because it sets this stage very nicely. Um, you wrote, commercial organizations across the European Union lost 142 billion euros on failed IT projects in 2004 alone, mostly because of poor alignment with business objectives or business strategies becoming obsolete during delivery. This is roughly the cost of the International Space Station program, including all flights are almost twice the cost of the entire Apollo program, which achieved six land- manned landings on the moon end quote uh, and i love I loved it when I came across that because um, so much of the time people hear about things like testing or agile and they think you know this is this is the kind of boring stuff and um, it's it's I've, this has come up on this podcast before, but like I just find it endlessly fascinating the amount of waste that people are willing to tolerate when it comes to uh things having to do with software and computing uh that they would probably not tolerate in other areas and i i don't know how to kind of capture it but there's something like there's something about kind of executive not and this is changing of course but you know there's something about a certain type of executive culture that kind of just can't handle the software side of things. Uh, and, and there's also a problem going the other way where there's, you know, uh, people on the software side of things sometimes, you know, don't, don't naturally have an understanding of the business side of things. And so this is, it's so interesting reading your books and, and you're listening to your talks because you're kind of, you seem to be sort of not in the middle of it, but understanding how these things are actually kind of all connected. Uh, And one important thing is sort of one of the really important things is managing communication by trying to talk the same language. Um, And this is where things like domain-driven design and and stuff like that come into it, as I understand it. But um, uh, have you seen, I guess in the course of your career, have you seen attitudes around the relationship that, say, the C-suite has to software change?
1: I guess, you know, that's more related to a particular company than, than the whole industry. I think as a whole industry, we're all, you know, we're still, um, there's still a lot more demand than there is supply in terms of software. I think um, when that's going to stop is a really interesting question, because if I didn't really follow the part of the industry before the nineties. I've read about it, but I, I you know it's it's very difficult to talk about it because I've not participated in that. But my, my understanding is that somewhere you know in in, uh, in the eighties and seventies and people were automating existing business processes. You would automate a well known accountancy process by building an accounting package that was to deal with, you know, uh, the, the speeding up the human side of things and the human cost. I actually, find a quote, found a quote by um, uh, John von Neumann, um, who uh, worked with some students and, and they tried to build a compiler very early on. So to avoid having to manually do the assembling part, like you know, the d- digits part of the machine code. And he was really angry because they were spending valuable time of a scientific instrument on clinical work. So you know, the, the, the humans were cheaper than computers back then. And then we got into the situation where hum- computers were significantly more powerful than humans. They could do these, you know, census things and, and things like that that humans couldn't do. But then somewhere in the 80s, kind of we got to the point where computers were cheaper than humans. and. You had this, you know, well, almost anybody wanting to, companies wanted to have, you know, even word processing and, and things like that. And then those were still relatively well-known domains. We were automating things that were well-known. Um, and somewhere in the 90s, kind of, you know, the whole PC revolution really took off and... and then people are building lots and lots of interesting things to make, you know, this PC machine useful. But what we're doing now is mostly not really automating existing stuff. People are looking for new business opportunities. Even traditional businesses like banks are experimenting with new stuff, new technology, and there's a lot of it that is wasteful because the software is wasteful. Um, A lot of it is just because those things are bad ideas. And, you know, people are experimenting with different business ideas just using technology. Um, and th- there is an element to that as well. And I think, you know, uh, one part of it is really to figure out how do we not waste too much time building software that doesn't make sense. But, um, you know, it has the attitude of the C-suite changed? I think... Um, different companies, different levels and and different things. I worked with um, a couple of big companies where the attitude was actually reversed because a a different CEO came in or or a different CIO came in. um, And then, you know, they went all the way back to proper project management and, you know, proper plans and things that, you know, it's probably going to take five years for them to go back again to trying to understand what's going on. Mark Schwartz had a really interesting Piece of statistics in his book, um, I, the, the Art of Business Value, I think, where he talks about how the average lifespan for a chief information officer at a, at a large company is something like 18 months. Hmm. Hmm. Where, you know, 18 months is easily fungible into a software project that, you know, doesn't deliver or something like So, we, you know, we get through these cycles where you replace the head of IT at the company every 18 months, there's very little continuity there. And, you know, the, the 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 new person comes along and they always have to prove that whatever the old person did was rubbish. So...
0: Yeah, that's very surprising yeah. to me, actually. I did not know that. But... Um, uh, what is the reason for that I mean is it because someone moves on or is it because of just internal competitive pressure
1: I don't know it's you know probably general short term is thinking driven by you know uh, the market pressures or technology changing I, I, yeah it's, I wonder, it's, that, that, is, that is you know that is a big question but you know we, we, with that lack of continuity in large companies it's very difficult to do anything serious I mean you, you know yes You can build a lot of software in 18 months, of course, but can you properly launch a new product and make it grow and things? Probably not. You know, it still takes a couple of years to properly grow a good new product. Not because software is slow, but because that's how market takes things. You know, Facebook didn't become Facebook overnight. Uh, And they are an example of absolutely stellar growth, but it took them you know, at least five years to actually properly be the number one on the scene and things like that. And that, that is that is an outlier where, you know, I, I assume most other products, at least what I see, take a couple of years to grow into something that is a proper product. I don't know, you know, you were talking about pub starting in, what, 2011?
0: 2010, I think, yeah, yeah.
1: 2010. And, you know, I, I remember people not really treating LeanPub as a um, uh, respectable way, not respectable, but um, as a proper way of, you know, getting books. It was like, oh, these are all half-written things. You don't really know what you're buying. So it took a couple of years for for, for LeanPub to generate the reputation that it is a place where you actually go and buy books. And, you know, there's, I sell a decent amount of books on LeanPub. So people trust you. I trust you. I like buying LeanPub books. But... You know, just getting the technology out there is not enough. It takes a bit of time to establish trust in the market, to establish a name. And, you know, restarting strategic stuff every 18 months really is difficult to, uh, you know, follow any kind of continuity there. Yeah, it's really. And that that seems to be the statistical norm for, for the big companies out there.
0: And I mean, there's just so much there's so much we could talk about on this, um, uh, particularly with I mean, just very briefly with respect to LeanPub. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that LeanPub had to do was convince people uh, that it's a it's a respectable thing to publish a book before it's finished. Uh, And we're not talking about serially published novels like, you know, nonfiction uh, software programming books. You know, you know, why should you it's not only the public, the sort of like, is it is it? is it not respectable to publish that way? Is it sort of, you know, risky to buy books that way and things like that. And yet it's taken some time, but now, I mean, no one even asks us about it anymore, really people just get it. Uh, and it, and it took time and persistence to, to establish that. But now it's kind of like, at least, at least in the sort of like tech programming space, it's just an understood thing, but even, even with other kinds of books as well, but these things take time. And I'm curious. So, um, uh, do you think that maybe one of the reasons that CIO lifespans are so short is perhaps because it's easy to blame the person who's sitting on top of software when things don't work?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, and and, and that probably is a, uh, you know, a scapegoat or a, uh, you yeah. know, a lightning bolt position where... When something doesn't work, it's much easier for the CEO to fire the CIO than accept the blame that, you know, they, 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 the whole strategy was wrong. So, yeah, absolutely, and plus, you know, the the, the uh, whole technology landscape is, is changing so frequently still that it's very difficult to place good bets. Uh, there are, of course, you know, a... Uh, reasonably good large companies that benefit quite a lot from technology but they they're probably an exception rather than the rule
0: yeah yeah it's 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 just so interesting how you know we we I quoted that number from your book about the
1: 142 and yeah and that's the number from the british british computing society research uh, there's uh, yeah it the, the was published in in, in impact mapping I, I can publish the reference to that but yeah, i'm i'm kind of fascinated by how much money people are willing to throw away on software. But I, I said, I don't know if that's just throwing money away on software or throwing money away on, on bad business ideas. There's, you know, there's both sides of it, but it's definitely, you know, inefficiently building software is, is a great way to throw money away. That, that's, um, and that's um, what, what I guess the whole um, lean startup counter-culture revolution try to fight against and, and taking these massive, massive, massive bets. And, you know, in a sense, the whole agile movement and extreme programming is also a um, fight against that, fight against these big, 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 big bets that for years and years we don't make the payoff or not and at some point they get shut down. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a lovely... Uh, episode that happened at the BBC a few years ago, I now quote that quite often in my impact mapping talks, where there was their personalization project, Uh, my BBC shut down after they spent £75 million, and because it was a publicly funded project, the uh, UK National Audit Office got involved, and the conclusion was amazing. Um, the conclusion was that they could spend 75 million pounds without delivering any value and that being shut down because the whole thing was agile. And k- kind of the extreme programming was a fight against these big bets. And now we're ending in these massive projects where people are calling them agile and throwing away, you know, 75 million pounds is more than a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Yeah
0: it's, yeah. it's, it's really interesting. The, um, the, cause one of the, one of the curious things about, you know, if you, if you, um, if you have a business idea and it involves, I don't know, like making a new car, uh, and you fail, there's, there's sort of physical things to show for it at least. And there's assets to sell off and things like that. But, you know, we've, we've, I mean, we, you know, uh, a big, a big famous example from sort of relatively recent times was the, uh, of a big software fail was, um, the, uh, affordable healthcare act. In the states, or Um, Obamacare—I probably got the name wrong—but you know they had a a famous fail with their website. In Canada, we we had um, our government, our federal government, I believe, spent something like three hundred million, either three hundred million or a billion dollars, trying to create a gun registry that failed, and they just had to completely start over. Uh, And um, more recently, there was the Canadian federal government had some. It 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 sort of uh, hired, I think, a, a very famous company. Um, to build a uh, 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 payroll system for it that just completely failed, and it was like a billion dollars. And at the end of these software projects, there's nothing to show for it because it, all you built was was kind of code. And so there's something particularly, I don't know, kind of uncanny about a software fail mm. where it's like the the there's li- there's nothing physical even to sell off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, yeah. when you're done. Um, and uh, but anyway, just I mean, so going from very high to sort of the details. So how are we going to solve these problems? And there's agile practices and things like that. And you you brought up impact mapping, um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. So you've got a book on, on impact mapping on Leanpub, and this mm. so uh, uh, an idea you developed from something else called I think it was effect mapping. Um,
1: yeah. So the the um, I came across that idea. Uh, it's a, a first of all, it's a visualization technique that helps to show the big picture. It helps to show how the activities that people are doing on a day-to-day basis, delivering tasks, features, what what they plan to do relates to uh, an organizational objective or relates to the company goals. And and, um, I came across that. It was um, invented by a Swedish interaction design agency called INUS to help their work with, I think, the Swedish government, actually, on, on large government IT projects. Because they realized how much of how much waste there is and, and how by helping people communicate better and visualizing what um, you know really needs to be done and, and helping people understand their assumptions and, and that how much more effective people could be um, and it, it really kind of came to me at a very interesting point in, in my career I guess I maybe wasn't ready for that message before, but it, it came slightly, after I needed it, and I got a big slap in the face because I didn't know that, I was a CTO of a startup where we technically did stuff amazingly. We had continuous delivery before continuous delivery was a buzzword, or even the book came out. We had, you know, 100% test automation. We had probably the, the programmers I worked with then, I, you know, were one of the best, people that technically ever worked with, one of the best people personally i ever worked with. So amazing team. Um, technically, I think we did everything right and the company ran out of money. And I, I got to the point where I didn't have money to pay rent next month because I wasn't taking a salary. I was hoping it's going to, you know, explode and become big. Um, and I really realized then that he, uh, all this technical stuff is kind of pointless if we're not building the right thing and um, that, that, that inspired me to do a couple of conference talks on you know why can't we build the right thing and and one of the um, after a conference talk one of the guys in the audience came and said look you really need to read this book and he actually gave me a copy of the book um, and that's how I learned about this um, the technique called effect Uh I, I hope I pronounced it correctly I don't know how to pronounce Swedish stuff, but uh, it's, it, the book is called Effect Mapping in 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 English. And although they were talking about this from kind of big government project perspective, as I realized how wonderfully it can fit into iterative projects and iterative delivery. And and that's how I uh, you know I, I started talking about, started writing about that. Um, I. Um, was really excited about that and you know try, tried it out with a couple of clients uh, i had to go back to consulting after the startup failed so you know i went back full full on to make money for it <laughs> um, and we were we experimenting we were trying it out and based on some early experiments i remember talking to craig larman about this because um kind of we we, we shared the similar client and went out for dinner and craig actually said that you know uh, effect mapping is is not a name that people will instantly get in english there needs to be something punchier so he suggested impact mapping as a name and impact mapping it became um and uh yeah that that's you know a a one of the most important tools in my arsenal now to develop good products and and figure out how not to waste time and, and focus on the right things.
0: And, and the way it works is kind of like a mind map, if I understand it correctly. Mm, so you, yeah. you sort of start with a sort of statement in the center and then you branch off these kind of child statements that can have child statements of their own.
1: Yeah, so it kind of, the idea is that you relate a a higher level business goal or something that kind of, you know, you want to achieve for the next milestone, three months, six months, a year, or something like that, and then relate it to smaller business changes that need to happen in order for that to happen. And then, link that to technical changes or software features or smaller business activities, deliverables that kind of you want to achieve. So there's, you know, after I started researching this, there's actually quite a lot of um, uh, similarity with a bunch of other ideas. There's a lovely book I read um, last year where they explain the same thing but from a slightly different perspective called Four Disciplines of Execution where they talk about how everybody can measure at the end whether the thing succeeded or failed. So it's very easy for, you know, the, the Canadian government a billion dollars later to realize that this project failed. But uh, it's very difficult for people to know that after they spent only $1,000 or only $10,000 because you, you still don't know. And that's because it's very difficult to measure uh, something on a shorter time scale that gives you a good indicator of value. It's very easy to measure effort. But it's very easy, difficult to measure values. so um, that's what impact mapping helps with. Impact mapping gives people a way to measure things on a shorter time scale uh, through behavior changes. Um, And that's again what, um, in in four disciplines of execution, they, they conclude as two potential things that you can measure on shorter time scale, one is behavior changes you know, will people do something better, faster, cheaper, easier? Will people publish books differently than they did before? You know, with Pub they can publish books halfway through production and they can get feedback. That's a difference. That's a behavior change. Will people buy books that are unfinished? That, that, that's, again, a behavior change. And you can measure kind of behavior changes there and you can focus on achieving behavior changes. And that's a... Um, You know, that's the core idea in four disciplines of execution, but it's also a core idea behind impact mapping where you map software deliverables to behavior changes that these deliverables are going to lead to kind of longer-term business goals and, you know, look at these things. And the the genius of that is that that behavior changes are observable on a shorter time scale, but behavior changes are also scalable. You know, if I'm – in order to achieve something, if I'm supposed to get people to – click on a button 50% more than they are now that's a behavior change if i get them to click 2% more that's already valuable it should go live yeah, that is yeah, you know yeah, that yeah. is that is the core of iterative delivery how do we know that you know the essential question that people need to ask themselves when they are delivering a software product is are we moving in the right direction not are we there but are we moving in the right direction and if we're not moving in the right direction how do we move in the right direction while well, we still can and that's why you know, I, I, I use a metaphor of a GPS where, you know, we, we, with the GPS navigator, the, the fact that you have turn-by-turn navigation is what makes the whole difference. People had maps before, you know, and you could find yourself on a map before. People had, you know, ways to measure longitude and latitude and things like that. But having turn-by-turn navigation and cheap re-planning is, is what really brought the revolution there. And having good operational awareness where you are at every moment, so it's not a big issue if you miss a turn mm-hmm. the GPS navigator will replot it and tell you where to take the next turn and you know with with what impact why, why the reason why I'm so passionate about impact mapping is impact mapping helps people create a GPS for their software delivery
0: and yeah and so just a couple of things about that one as uh, so uh, just so people understand the the if I'm, cor- if I'm correct, the, the exercise of impact mapping, uh, when you sort of make this kind of mind map, is not to make a plan, uh, necessarily, you know, stick, stick to the here are some steps and we've got now we've all got to stick to them. The higher level thing is to have a conversation.
1: Absolutely uh, so that
0: yeah. a shared and, and a shared and visual understanding a visualized understanding because you can't have a shared understanding unless you're all kind of looking at the same thing
1: yeah 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 and you so know having, having it having it having the externalized having it visual so can people can make sure that they understand the same thing uh, making it tactile so people can play around with different priorities and options is is what really makes the big difference and again not not just creating a plan but actually creating a bunch of Compatible plans where you can start, you know, choosing things. um, Again, where, you know, when you start researching something, lots of compatible ideas start popping out. One of the books that really opened my eyes to explaining this thing slightly differently and and learning about this more is is, um, Adapt by Tim Hartford. Hartford is a British economist and he wrote a book on why linear plans tend to fail. No, no, not in software. He doesn't understand software. He has a couple of... Uh, he actually has a case study about software in the book, or not a case study, a story, but he I think he didn't really understand what was going on there. But there's lots of really wonderful stories from um, civil engineering, from uh, government planning, from, you know, the military, where he talks about how linear plans tend to fail because replanning is difficult when unexpected things happen. And how he comes up with this three... Uh, three principles for good plans. And one of the principles for good plans is that a good plan has to have variation. So it has to have more than what you will just end up delivering so that if something unexpected happens, there's options for you to choose right there and then. Uh, as I said, you know, the, the magic of a GPS navigator is it made replying cheaper. If a mistake happens, there's all of these other options that are there for you. So an impact map is kind of a menu of things you can do but you're trying not to find you know it's a road map in a true sense where there's a map of roads you don't want to take all the roads you want to take the shortest fastest cheapest road but the fact that all these other roads exist is beneficial because you know there's a plan b a plan c a plan d and, and all of it there as well so an impact map is a visualization of this whole landscape what we could do to cause potential impacts in the business that we might want to do or might not want to do that could lead to this objective. And it allows people then to, you know, agree on it as a plan, agrees people to replan cheaper and easier if if replanning needs to happen. And it allows everybody to be really, really focused on this thing we want to achieve and and subordinate everything to that. I'm uh, actually now writing um, uh, um, another impact mapping book. Um, And... that should appear on impact in a few months. Um, We've done a bunch of interviews with organizations where they've adopted impact mapping and interviewed them about how they applied it and what the benefits are, and we spoke to a big government agency. I still can't publish the name because we're still going through the process of getting permissions, but um, a huge uh, US government agency where they, they were stuck in this process where for a year and a half, they were collecting requirements. Nothing else, just collecting requirements to you know, re- replace an old system with a new system. And um, I, a new uh, CIO took over and basically realized this is never going to be finished. So instead of this whole Word document, they got all the stakeholders in the room, spent a few days impact mapping, created a plan, and they realized that what they wanted to do is they wanted to cause a behavior change where a human case worker can process more cases per day. That, that, that is the whole thing. And, you know, they published that number. Everything else was subordinate to that number. And they were choosing software features that helped them do that. They were measuring very quickly. Is the number growing or shrinking or staying the same? And that would that allowed them to understand whether, you know, the features they were introducing, the way they were building the software, is allowing them to help people move that number in the right direction. Cla- the clarity of that was, was insane because they... Achieved what they called full operational readiness, which is a wonderful government kind of phrase for you know pro- project done two years before anybody expected.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. There's there's uh, so much so much to touch on there. One of the uh, really interesting things that you're talking about that you talk about in the book as well, and you, you sort of glanced at or mentioned here briefly, is that if you're if you're co- sort of coming up with a sort of like I'm going to put it in quote unquote plan because often people think that's just like a sort of series of steps that you've all predetermined. Uh, But if you're having a discussion about what you're up to, um, and you've finished that discussion without talking about what do we do if we have setbacks, what kind of setbacks might we encounter, then you're not done that conversation yet. You can't just have a sort of like optimal, nothing's going to change, all the conditions are going to stay the same. And one thing I've been noticing in in talking to to people uh, uh, who work on similar issues like you for this podcast is that there's this this curious... um, convergence between kind of special operations, military kind of strategy and, and software strategy, uh, where, um, if, if people, what you want to do is give, especially in an agile work environment, as long as people have a shared understanding of the, of the goal and the purpose and the culture, then you can, then you can give them autonomy on the kind of ground level. Uh, but And, and that, that way you can kind of like, you can take into account variation, uh, you, because people will, as you say, there'll be a plan B, there'll be a plan C, but once you've, once you've gone through the exercise of having a plan B or a plan C, people know how they have a shared understanding of how to adapt to changing situations. So when things inevitably change, then they know how to come up with a plan D or E on the spot. Hmm. Um, uh, and, um, and you mentioned behavior, and so this is, actually, this is actually quite a complex concept, and I was wondering if we could kind of narrow it down through a story I know you like to tell about the 40 or 41 uh, shades of blue. Oh, uh,
1: uh, yeah, yeah. That's…
0: Uh, um, I was wondering if you could sort of briefly tell, share, share that story with people who are…
1: Absolutely, really yes. Yeah, by, by the way, you know, assuming that these people will listen to this on a, on a device of some sort that's connected to the internet. Um, it, 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 there's a lot of about this story from lots of different sides, and one of the most wonderful things about this story is that you can actually read both sides of the story online. It's usually read, you know, one perspective, but with this, because you you can actually kind of find people on both sides of the story online. Then you can make make up your own decision. So at Google, a while ago, um, the, um, the, the, the 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 head of design wanted to change the color of the links on the homepage and. The um, this was I don't know um, not the first change they were introducing. So the engineers, my understanding is, got a bit pissed off with all the changes. Uh, c- can I say pissed off on the podcast? Or oh, do you yeah, cut it yeah, out? yeah. It's a
0: podcast. Okay, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: um, yeah, so that they, they, and they, they wanted to kind of challenge that a bit and fig- wanted to figure out how, how do they test that this is right and w- what makes this color good and. Um, now we have this situation where somebody who obviously is, you know, one of the top professionals in their work, um, who rose to the ranks to be the head of design at Google, came in, uh, coming up with a color. Well, you know, that's their responsibility, and the color was supposed to be a lot more noticeable to a human eye according to the color theory. Now, what the Google engineers did at this point is they kind of knew about the trick with behavior changes, so they were asking about. Um, not how to test this whether they've done what they were being asked to do but how to test whether what they were being asked to do was a good idea and um, you can't really test whether a caller is more noticeable or not you, you can I mean you can put it in front of people you can ask them do you notice this more or not but th- that's not a behavior change and what they talk about in four disciplines of execution is if you can find a behavior change that becomes observable it becomes something you can measure and you don't end up asking people what they want. You end up observing them. And on a side note, um, that, that's probably one of the most brilliant things I've learned from you know in, in my career is don't trust users to kind of you know know what they want or or to tell you what they want. Observe them and then figure out what's going on. So how do you observe how do you observe um, users when you observe behavior? Observe a behavior and look for a change. So. They, they kind of figured out that if this color is a lot more noticeable, um, people will be clicking more on ads. And then that night, as, as the name of the episode popularly suggests, Google, Google developers deployed that color, but also 39 other colors of blue. And they proved that, in effect, if you kept that color for 100% of users over a year, I don't remember the exact number now, but you know it's, it's easy to find online. It's probably something like $250 million would, you know, lost revenue. (laughs) Because, you know, that color might be more noticeable when you print it on a $5 million Heidelberg printer that actually prints that color. But when you show it on a cheap LG phone, it's not that color. It's some abstraction of it. And who knows why? As you said, people are unpredictable. Unexpected things happen. So... You know the, the the head of design, depending on whose side of story you, story you read, either was fired or quit, and as a result of that. But yeah, they, 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 that's a big question of how much does a change in color cost. Does it cost I don't know 20 minutes of somebody's time reconfiguring CSS files and maybe an hour of testing, or does it cost 250 million dollars in lost revenue? Although somebody very very important says this is the right color to use you know humans are unpredictable essentially that's part of a, a a problem and especially you know with with a multitude of devices with a multitude of um usage patterns and things like that that's really really difficult to predict what's going to happen
0: that that's actually a great opportunity to segue to uh talking about another book of yours humans versus computers uh when you bring up yeah. the, un- the unpredictability of humans um and uh it's so interesting because we have these wonderful uh, machines and you talked a little bit about how, you know, they've the computers have improved over time uh, uh, and become, you know, dramatically more powerful than they were in the past. And then so they're applied to all kinds of problems that they wouldn't have been applied to necessarily in the past. But there's all kinds of, you know, the, the computer itself is supposed to be a sort of predictable machine. Uh, but when it starts interacting with unpredictable humans, uh, all kinds of things start to happen. And um, one of the examples... Uh, that you have in your book uh, has to do with license plates. Um, mm. And uh, what was, let me just see, I've, I've got it right here. There was one. one... Oh, there's a
1: couple of examples. There's kind of void license plates, non license plates, you know, there's 7X's license plates. There's, yeah, people yeah. have all, all sorts of. Um, yeah, all sorts of curious ways of you know getting vanity license plates, and then that interacted with bad assumptions in software systems quite a lot. One of you know the loveliest examples of that was think, a software developer who thought it would be funny to get license plates for void, um, not knowing that in his county the software system was developed so badly that if they you know the, the courts voided a tickets if they, they, they threw it out in court the only way they could record that in the software system is to record it against void license plates So all of a sudden this poor guy started receiving uh, parking tickets and, and and fines for all everything that was voided last 10 years because before that you know nothing was matching and now all of a sudden
0: yeah yeah just 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 to be clear about the so, yeah so it's such a great story so for someone got a vanity license plate that instead of having the usual combination of letters and numbers that's kind of random it said void but the computer system had a sort of classification for void uh, license plates. And so um, uh, this guy who had the, the, the license plate that actually had the text void uh, started getting mixed up with things that were classified as void. And it's really interesting, too, how, for example, um, I think another example might be someone who had a license plate somewhere in the States that was missing was the yeah, yeah. and what would happen was, um, and I might be mixing up the examples, but it's the same same kind of thing. Where what would happen was the the local kind of um, uh, parking attendants, if if mm. if they couldn't get a license plate so for some reason, they would type missing.
1: Absolutely, uh, yeah, that's because again, yeah. a stupid software system where somebody put that as a mandatory field. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah, that, that's a famous example. There's another example uh, of. Uh, somebody having a license, vanity license plate for no plates, <laughs> which is a, a uh, you know, wonderful combination of two bad software assumptions. So the first one was when he was trying to get license plates, uh, I, I think he just sold a uh, company. So he just became rich and you know bought a yacht and he uh, wanted to have boating or sailing as one of the licenses, but the software to ask for that required at least three choices and he couldn't think of a third choice. So as his third choice, he wrote down no plates. Like, you know, this is a mandatory field, but I don't want anything else unless you can give me one of these two. And because, you know, the, 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 the everything is automated now, he actually got... Plates that were no plates. Somebody interpreted his answer as like, I don't want this as no plates. He thought this was funny, but very similar to the example you gave. Um, I, in, in, in California, I think uh, parking attendants were instructed to type in no plates into the software for issuing parking violations when they couldn't read the plate or whether the plates were missing. So yeah, I think at some point this person was receiving something like 2,000 parking tickets a, a day or something insane.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. And there's another example, I think one that, that people might be um, a little bit more familiar with where there was a guy who had like an unfortunate IP address, a farmer somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And then that IP address was associated with um, criminal activity and things like that. And all of a sudden, you know, he he got police vans. Uh, at his farm I mean, these people,
1: James these James people James. actually was an elderly elderly couple um, uh, you know you, you've put me on a spot now I don't remember exactly the names I can find it in the book but it's all in the in the humans versus computers book but I think James and Theresa Arnold if I remember correctly so they rented this farm in in, in um, Kansas in the middle of nowhere um, where uh, they didn't even have a computer and all of a sudden people started showing up FBI showed up to you know search for missing laptops they were People showing up from you know all these three-letter government agencies uh, almost every week and the local sheriff had to put up a sign uh, in front of their house saying that if anybody wants to arrest them to come and talk to the sheriff first that's how badly it got and actually what happened is um, the somebody sold to the US government a system that was translating IP addresses into physical addresses but you know you, Anybody who's done stuff with computers knows that there's no accurate translation for that. There's approximations and approximations. And what this software did was actually um, it would try to find data from various Wi-Fi networks and, you know, like assigned numbers and, and things like that. And then it couldn't find the exact address. What it would do is it would place it in the geographical middle of the area where it knew kind of it belonged. So if it knew that the address is in New York, but not exactly where in New York, it would place it into geographic middle of New York, where James and Theresa Arnold had a um, lucky or unlucky um, kind of coincidence that they rented a farm that was the closest kind of building to the geographic middle of the U.S. So... If this thing knew that an IP address is in the US, but not exactly where in the US, it effectively was, you know, mapping it to their home. And they had 600 million IP addresses assigned to them. Oh, my. my. Without even having a computer. Um, So you can imagine almost any any criminal activity that happened, you know, online, they, 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 they were flagged for that one way or another.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You've got a yes. line in your book where, you know, to, to I mean, there are also, sort of, I recommend this book highly to anyone. It's just so entertaining uh, and, and so interesting uh, to, to read all these stories. But you, you have a line in the introduction where you say, digitizing a piece of work doesn't mean there will be no mistakes, but instead guarantees that when mistakes happen, they'll run at a massive scale. Um, and this, this is an interesting feature of, of, of contemporary life where, um, uh, you know, these mistakes, uh, because of automation and things like that, can suddenly be. Very dramatic and widespread, and it's just this sort of.
1: It's a machine gun. It is a machine gun. It's, it's, yeah. It's you know it's a uh, and you push a button and all sorts of kind of bad things happen unless you know what you're doing.
0: Yeah, which which reminds me, actually, I just saw an article the other day. Yeah. I mean, this is you know not new, but you know, automated, literally automated machine guns are something that we're going to have in our world going forward, and it's very important to keep in mind that you know when we have these discussions about. Uh, software testing and, you know, agile project management and things like that. Like we're, we're, we're actually talking, these are not trivial matters. This is, you know, literal life and death. Um, You, you have an example in your book of um, uh, people who've been convicted of violent crimes getting out early and then committing crimes that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to because of mistakes made by software and, and different... You know, they might not even be... It's, it's interesting because when, it's when systems operate... With yeah, there's,
1: there's, systems. The opposite, there's the opposite example as well, where, you know, there's, there's a system in... There was a system in, in the US, I don't remember which state, I think Michigan, uh, and there was a similar system in, in Australia that was automatically issuing uh, fines and penalties for um, tax fraud or benefits... Sorry, benefits fraud, not tax fraud, benefits fraud. And... Um, the, the, the system was quite buggy, I think. The Michigan system was wrong one out of ten times. And, you know, they were sending these massive fines to people who are on benefits, so, you know, they don't have money to pay. And, and there were a couple of people committing suicides because of that. They were, they were you know, lost faith in, in community and, and, and um, you know, figured out there's no way out. And, and this, this is really the danger that now software is running everything you know that that is the danger of kind of small mistakes just having having this massive massive ripple effect and and
0: and and the way the way shortcuts as well that you that happen in development can actually have a real impact on people so for example you've got a great example about uh bad things can happen if your last name is null yeah yeah (laughs) uh when I was reading that, it reminded me of I'm 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 not a technical person myself, but one of the ways I got I got hazed uh, when I started uh, working on Leanpub was like Len, go go internationalize uh, the website. And one thing I came there was when I was trying to set up the Norwegian language, uh, I kept it just wouldn't work, and it was because I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but the two-letter code for the language was No.
1: Yeah, there yeah, was something no. I was uh,
0: doing in Rails that thought this was like. No, not not no,
1: not the language. No, it took yes. me like
0: forever to figure out what was actually going on, uh, and hmm. uh, it's interesting how these details of the way we're we're sort of like you know, because software is is writing, uh, and uh, there's this sort of inbuilt problem that there's this difference between the sort of text that you write when you're writing normally, like when you're writing out people's names and the text that you're writing when you're writing the software and these two things can become conflated and it's just an inherent problem uh, because writing is writing and software is writing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, any writing can be misunderstood by a human or by a machine and, you know, and and that kind of, you know, leads back into what I mentioned earlier. I think, you know, 70s, 80s, people were automating well-known processes. You, You were automating a accountancy process where... Um, you know, there is an accountant that knows how that is supposed to work. So, you know, the big challenge is how do you transfer the knowledge from a person that knows how it's supposed to work to somebody who knows how to program. And, but today, my, my guess is that, you know, a lot of the software, maybe more than half is, is written about stuff that even business people don't really know how it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. You know, you're doing this machine learning, artificial intelligence thing that guesses benefits fraud. Well, you know, do we even know how to properly detect benefits frauds 100% of the time as humans? Probably not. And you know, automating that may- makes it really, really problematic. One of, one of the one of the lovely examples I you know I, I read recently that came out too late for the humans versus computers book, but. There was a system in China they developed to automatically find pedestrians when they cross a street outside of a pedestrian crossing. And it was, you know, a marvel of technology. They're doing face recognition. They're doing automatic finding. They're sending fines out. And, and um, when they turned it on, there was a lady that got, I don't know, tens of thousands of, of, of uh Finds the next day from all all over China, which is physically impossible. You know, even if she crosses the same, you know, somebody can cross the street a couple of thousand times in a day and get a couple of thousand violations. But this is from all over China, so you can't really walk there. And it turns out um, she was a model for a advert that was printed on the back of city buses. Oh my God. Um, and and you know, the face recognition software was catching her face in the middle of a street that wasn't on a pedestrian crossing and automatically issuing a fine. And, you know, there's a, you know, we can laugh about that thinking about, well, you know, yes, of course, that would happen. But, you know, did anybody designing that system from, you know, the, the administrators to the police to lawmakers to business people to software to developers and testers, you know, did anybody think, well, you know, obviously there's going to be somebody on the back of the bus. Will we recognize that? In retrospect, they should have. But the big question is, how do you know that up front? And, and that is one of these, you know, unexpected things that happen. And
0: Yeah. And, and of course, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the data that's fed into uh, systems that then uh, machine learning systems, for example, can itself uh, have have biases, um, and so then you know for example i, I think I think a sort of well known example nowadays is um uh a machine learning system for um, selecting candidates for job openings uh if it 's trained on uh data that uh historical data uh for a company that conventionally didn 't hire women uh let 's you can say for example pick a stereotypical company like a construction company, then the, what the machine learns is that men are better at this job than women are. And so you should, you should you know, be biased in favor of hiring men if you want to succeed. And so, you know, that it, just just because there are sort of numbers and information doesn't mean that something's uh, objective or even...
1: Absolutely. Reasonable. And, you know, I, I, yes. I, kind of, I think I actually have this reference in, in the Humans vs. Computers book. I, I don't know if I read that before or after the book came out, but there, there, there was a serious scientific research... Comparing face recognition algorithms, um, concluding that you know there is a very very statistically significant difference between the accuracy of the algorithms done in kind of China, Japan, and and kind of a, a, the, the Pacific countries on that side, and and uh, on the other side, Europe and and the US, where algorithms done in Europe and US are much much better at guessing white people's faces. Mm-hmm. They don't differentiate Asian background people faces that much. Where algorithms developed in in Japan and China, they're much much better at differentiating Asian people faces, but they're not as good as kind of you know differentiating white people's faces. Um, but, you know, I, as it always happens, if you are a min- minority in that situation, like you know you're black or you are from you know a, a native uh, Canadian tribe. Then basically, you know, tough luck. Yeah, you, it's, the, it's, the, it's, you know, you don't have enough programmers to worry about you, and uh, there's just this whole um, training bias for all these models that, that is insane. And the more we kind of, you know, you rely on these things, and the more we use on these things, we are going to institutionalize and automate bias. That that's what's that's what's happening. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. the, the, and. and you know, whether that is legal or not is, is a question for courts, I guess. But mm-hmm. it's, I think, one of the things that's really going to be problematic there is, uh, I, in, in Europe, there is a, um, a legal requirement. I, I'm not entirely sure when it will become law. Probably kind of in a few years, I, I can dig out the details for the podcast listeners, but about kind of explainability. And, and justifying the decisions made by a machine. So if you are denied a home loan, or if you are, you know, arrested because an algorithm said you have to be arrested, you have the right to ask for an explanation. Which, for a lot of these machine learning things, there is no explanation. It's just pattern matching, uh, which is, you know, institutionalized racism and institutionalized bias. And yeah, you know, do people with do people with a flat nose, uh, you know, make more parking violations? Well. To
0: yeah it's a really it's a really dangerous world we're going into and it's 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 um uh let's let's hope that the regulation can at least uh respond uh and and hopefully even uh you know anticipate these kinds of problems because you know notoriously governments lag way behind uh you know handling even you know we we have something in canada called the castle laws uh which took years to develop and it's the Canadian anti-spam legislation. And this is something as simple as dealing with email, you know, and what, what should the rules be around who you can e- email? What should those rules be took years and years and they kind of got it wrong. And then when you talk about things like, you know, and there's, there are companies out there right now doing, doing all this kind of, uh, you know, machine learning on biased data and people are getting caught up in this all the time. Um, you, you mentioned the courts and I wanted to just mention something. So, uh, Just before we started this call, uh, I was I was, you know, going through humans versus computers and you had a great case in there of these two guys who walked into the same uh, sort of shop half an hour apart and both won the lottery. Um, And it was discovered later that, uh, you know, this was because of a bug. And so at the time you wrote the book, the the case was not. So then these guys, the the lottery retracted the money from the the, the wins from the two men. uh, And so they sued. And at the time you wrote the book, uh, this case hadn't been concluded. And I just looked it up uh, and they lost. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, it says um, the anomalous drawings in the conclusion to this, uh, this actually the, the legal document. It says mm. the anomalous drawings were not legal lotteries because they did not have the required element of chance. Um, The court. Oh, the, yeah. yeah.
1: So that shows you that, you know, the the, the the a large software, multinational corporation that deals with lotteries has probably more money to pay lawyers to. Exactly.
0: exactly um, uh, And
1: two people thought they won a lottery. I mean, yeah, that, that's.
0: Uh, yeah. And you wrote about a different case uh, in the book uh, in British Columbia where this, a similar thing happened. But the, the nice, oh, we're so sorry, Canadians actually did pay out. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah that is that is the canadian thing to do isn't it so that's
0: yeah apologize to try and make everybody happy um uh, and so uh actually just moving on to the, the we've been talking for a while now moving on to the the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience as an author so you started writing early on in your career not in not not necessarily uh so in such a dedicated way in high school but after after college and during college uh and um you started writing books at a certain point uh and i was wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about how that came about, what was your what was your first book?
1: So my my first book was called uh, Test Driven Development with Fitness. Um, I um, became really enthusiastic about this whole communication aspect of test driven development, and th- this was you know um, before the buzzword Behavior Driven Development was coined, or before we kind of knew how to do. Testing properly in agile, and um, I so you know we were talking about early, uh, early to mid kind of 2000s and, and um, there was this wonderful tool that wasn't really well documented, and I, I, um, I started documenting it for my colleagues and uh, the developers I worked with, and then realized that there probably is a book in this, and. Um, I, I thought, you know, I could give a bit back to the community, it was an open source tool, I could give a bit about back to the community by documenting it and, you know, helping other people use it more effectively. Um, so I started doing that and then I, I proposed that as a uh, book topic to the pragmatic programmers. And they kind of, you know, said yes, but then uh, about six months later when the book was finished, they said no. Um, Apparently not because the content of the book is bad. I, I don't even know if that was true or not, but because one of their editors left and they had to cut down on the amount of, you know, the books they were processing. So I, I don't know if that was a a, uh, a genuine explanation or whether that was just to tell me that they wrote a really bad book and they don't want to publish it. Um but then I was left with this um, yeah book that was written but not, not having a publisher and there, there was a significant delay. I was waiting for these things to brew and I didn't want to do that thing again. And I thought I could go find another publisher and wait six months again for them to decide or I could just, you know, publish it because I thought I wasn't even doing this for money. I was doing this to give back to the community and... Um, Self publishing was just exploding on the scene back then. And I realized, you know, I could actually self publish this rather than publish it through a publisher. So that's where I um, spent a considerable amount of time building my own Limpub toolkit before Limpub came out and then built it using XML and DocBook and, you know, all these other things. So at the end, I had a single make script that built a PDF and built an EPUB and built a, you know, I'm not sure if I built a Kindle version. I don't think Kindle was out then yet, or so if it was, then I had a Kindle version as well. You know, I was really impressed with my Make file, but it was unmaintainable. So I, you know, when Pub came out, I was really impressed. I thought somebody finally figured out how to do this properly.
0: <laughs> and what was it? What was it in particular about about what we were doing at the time uh, that that attracted you? Was it writing, in, for example, the ability to write in plain text?
1: Yeah, I think Markdown. Markdown. I never, you know, it never really occurred to me that I should be writing this thing in Markdown. I, 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 don't know when Markdown kind of appeared on the scene, but, um, you know, writing a book in XML gives you lots of really interesting things, but is not fun, and it's really difficult to get a copy editor to edit it uh, properly. Where, um, you know, in Markdown now, I write in Markdown, and I have a copy editor that edits, edits it directly in Markdown. She doesn't use Git, but I send her Markdown files. She sends me back Markdown files. I put it in Git, I have a It's much, much, much easier to work with that as a um, topic. Plus, you know, you, you kind of shorten the whole loop between um, a book and, and sales, where the, the, the content between, you, you know, and and, and I the, the first book I self-published, I sold through this online marketplace called Lulu. Um, which yeah, yeah the, the the turnaround time is interesting if everything works but if things don't work they were really bad. I once waited a month for them to resolve something. Where you know with, with you I sent an email to hello at limpab com and Sunday evening I get a response that you know says something something's happening. So the um the, yeah the the, 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 the you, I think. That was a perfect product for me.
0: Yeah, one of the uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, you talk about how you develop your own your own book publishing process, or book writing process, book file production process yourself, and you know, um, uh, one of the one of the really interesting things about doing sort of support for you know a company like ours is we're we're often dealing with like um, people who really know know what they're doing. Uh, and so, uh, often, often, you know, I, I, it's, 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 funny when I talk to authors, they're often like, oh, you know, sort of thank you for, for, you know, answering our email on a Friday night or a Sunday morning or something like that. And it's like, thank you for providing all these awesome details that help us fix a problem or, or provide a solution because the typical lean pub sort of author knows that they, they can see behind what the problem is. If you know what I mean, uh, they, they can see the, probably what the cause is. Uh, behind the problem that they're encountering, and that helps us improve Leanpub for everybody. So when we get these great sort of support requests, um, uh, it's actually really, really, uh, you know, valuable to us. Um, uh, and so I noticed that for your latest book, uh, you used our bring your own book feature. Mm. Um, what uh, process are you using now?
1: So I'm, I'm kind of uh, for, for this book I went to I went to kind of a manual thing so to Pandoc basically because I wanted to have more control over code code highlighting that was kind of the deal breaker there. Actually, wrote it first. The, the whole book was done in Limpub and then I sent it out to reviewers. But when I finished the review version, um, that the code highlighting was not what I needed and and because this book has a lot of YAML examples and YAML is very um, finicky and and, and fidgety and uh, uh, very specific in terms of line breaks. Um, I, I had to get line breaking in code examples done very reliably on all platforms because I wanted to be able to refer to a particular line in the text so I kind of converted it from from Leanpub Markdown to um, basically yeah, just the code examples got converted to what Pandoc understands, and then I could build my own filters. Pandoc, one of the loveliest things about Pandoc is Pandoc allows you to kind of build a script that it runs as part of the build process, so you can replace parts of Pandoc. Um, so I could build my own code highlighting engine for the book. That that was kind of where um, I assumed getting you to do that specifically for this book was a bit too much to ask. But um, yeah, I used I, even in that case, I used LeanPub as a way of, of you know getting the, getting the book a lean part out through the review process and then the final layout I, I wanted to have more control of. Okay, Which is very similar to I guess how I did you know with, with my other books, I would do a LeanPub version uh, to to work on the text and then give it to a graphics designer. I work with this brilliant graphics designer called Nikola Korac, who does all the layouts for all my books. And then he would kind of properly do it in InDesign. And, you know, we always have a printed version of a book that's professionally laid out with... um, So kind of, you know, instead of working with Nikola this time to do the professional layout, I actually used, um, you know, a, a machine... Laying out thing, but primarily because I could build my own filters for that. And then, so, you know, maybe there is a uh, you know some f- feature for LeanPub authors there later to build their own you know um, plugins.
0: Yeah, it's it's really it's really thanks for sharing the details. We really appreciate that. Um, one of the sort of canonical uses of LeanPub is to uh, use use our own book writing workflows while you're you know to write and publish your book in progress. If you want to publish in progress when you're done writing, then if 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 formatting is very important to you, which it is for many books, uh, and you know, authors tend to, to be sort of particular people sometimes as well, and so a canonical use of Limpa is actually when you're done writing your book is to transition to another book production workflow, like take your manuscript and use InDesign or something. Yeah,
1: like yeah, that. and that's yeah, that's how that's how kind of you know all the Fifty Quick Ideas series books were done. That's how impact mapping was done. That's how humans versus computers were done. But for this particular thing, I you know because there's so many. Co- examples um i wanted to import them from a source code file rather than the source code files so i I can make sure they're right and that's why you know in effect i was using the Limpub workflow for that so as as the book was being written we used Limpub but then i i kind of converted the source into the final version using something else Um,
0: my last my last question about your books is one of the things that makes them so delightful is all the wonderful illustrations uh, so, yes. who does the illustrations?
1: Is that you? As I said, There's a yeah, uh, guy I work with called Nikola Korac, he's, uh, he's a Serbian guy, uh, absolutely wonderful designer, and he does all the illustrations for all our books. I um, met him through a friend who runs a branding design agency. I, when I was, you know, a lot younger, I had a lot more free time. I, I tried to draw a bit as well. So I. Um, And and then when I wrote impact mapping, I wanted to put some illustrations there. And I I drew, I don't know, 50, 60 illustrations. And I put it in a um, PDF. And I sent it to this friend of mine. And I said, look, you know, I can still draw. I I didn't completely forget this. And he replied saying, well, you know, maybe you should give this to a professional. I said, okay, you know, fair enough. So find me a professional. So he put me in touch with Nikola, who, who, uh, you know, did some work with him. And and Nicola is absolutely amazing. He can understand exactly what you know we need to describe, and has this whole visual language. And and I think luckily you know now he almost became associated with our books, so people can recognize those kind of illustrations. And I think that's one of So yeah, he did illustrations for um, uh, the, the uh, serverless book as well. Um, so there, there will be some really nice illustrations there. We actually had quite. Um, interesting I guess uh, political discussion there what to do because um, very often we, we yeah, especially for you know impact mapping and the, the, there is some truth to that as well um, we, we occasionally get complaints that there's not enough diversity in the books like we're not showing enough people from diverse backgrounds from and, and it's it's uh, I, I'm, I, obviously, we're not doing it the right way, but whatever we try, people still complain. So um, I, I kind of, you know, my, my, my mission for this book is to also do an experiment, like, how do we avoid this whole thing, and the conclusion was just don't show humans. Which is really problematic because, you know, from my early uh, magazine working days, and, and, and from my book editing days, I know that humans like to look at humans, and it's it's... You know, just having illustrations of dead objects around is is problematic. So we decided to personificate this thing and and we created this kind of um, bee that is in all these situations that looks like a human, has, you know, two legs, two arms and things like that. But there's, you know, no white people, no black people, no... uh, It's just, it's, it's a minefield. It's impossible to get, you know, everybody happy and, you know, I don't then have to And it's a shame. I, I, you know, I I value diversity, but it's a minefield for somebody who's an author, especially illustrations need to be illustrative. They're not supposed to fight a political war, but we, we seem to be at a period now where it's, you know... The, the best thing to do to avoid complaints is just avoid the whole thing at all
0: yeah actually thank you thank yeah. you very much for 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 talking about that this is i mean you're not you're not alone <laughs> of course in this you know the fights over emojis and things like that are something that everybody will probably have heard about with respect to diversity and things like that did you um and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but did you ever see the show community uh, no no uh there's a relevant joke about their um uh school's mascot that I can sent to you and probably link to in okay. the description, which you'll, you'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll get right away. But it, it's a genuine problem, uh, both for people who are creating content and for people who are consuming it, because um, at the same time as uh, one person might want to see more diversity and particularly, you know, people like them represented in things, when someone goes about then visually representing them with respect to the characteristics that they want to see, sometimes those then get represented in a way that they don't like that or that other Mm. people might not like, if you know what I mean. And then, you know, it can be like, well, okay, so, so, um, you know, uh, you depicted, you know, say this person is Asian, but if then what the role that person, the, the role that that identity is then mapped onto might be something that people then object to having that identity mapped onto, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, 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 so exactly. It's just it's, it's just, it's just like, and and it's not inherently fraught because, like, you know, oh, oh, woe is me, kind of like as a creator, why am I subject to these these complications? It's like because the whole thing, in real life, is fraught. You know,
1: it is, it is, yeah. it is a very complicated topic. But you know, like, like I, 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 I appreciate that topic is quite important, but um, it's it's very distracting uh from the message that. I want to have in, you know, if I'm writing a book on serverless programming, I'm not writing a book on cultural diversity in the world. And if the illustrations are there to provide um, support for the book readers, if they become distracting, then, you know, then it's missing the point. And the the problem is that it's very, very, you know, as as a indie author where everything is coming out of my own budget... It's very difficult to, you know, fight bigger political fights at the same time as de- delivering important technical content. And I, I kind of, you know, my, my solution is just for this book, my solution is just don't even try to, you know, get into that. Yeah, we'll so we'll see. We'll see, I mean, we'll see. If, if people complain that I have too many bees and I don't have enough wasps. Yeah. Or you know.
0: Yeah. Well, th- thanks. Thanks for thanks for being willing to talk about that. This is something that I think. I mean, people producing content of any kind, all over the place, uh, all face and and we don't we don't really talk talk about it enough because it is. And, and,
1: and, you know, the problem with the problem with if you look at any kind of illustrations, illustrations need to support the content, and very often resort to stereotypes because stereotypes are easy to recognize. they they're supposed to be recognizable, but then at the same time, as you said. Um, you know, putting people in a stereotype situation might be offensive. And, you know, that's why I guess now I have a bee. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: Bees bees, bees still don't have, you know, political uh, activism. We'll see with machine learning if that's going to happen soon. That's
0: true. That's true. Um, uh, So the last question I always like to ask in these interviews is um, if there was one thing we could fix for you on LeanPub or one thing we could build for you, uh, what would you ask us to do, and and uh, bracketing, you know, uh, uh, what you've already talked about. Uh.
1: Well, yeah, kind of for for, for most books, side write is is just like perfect, to, to, totally perfect. You and I, we talked about this before the interview. It's like you had my picture on the wall when you were designing, you know, the 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 product. So um, I think uh, kind of one problem that. I always have as an indie author is promoting the book and any kind of features around automating promotion and, and engaging with that is good. But at the same time, you know, there, there are there's a whole minefield of GDPR and things like that that, you know, helps uh, prevent people from building features they want to build. Um, and th- th- that is something that, you know, at the same time, you know, needs to be judged and played. But, yeah, in, in terms of... Um, Kind of this particular book I wrote, uh, being more flexible in terms of um, code formatting and line breaks and things like that is 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 an interesting thing. And I think you know, um, programming language-wise, that probably is something that would be useful for other technical authors as well. There's there's a lot of there are a lot of limpa books with a lot of code, yeah. and a book as a physical medium is is. Um, kind of relatively narrow, not wide, so you can't really fit a lot of code in. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, line positions sometimes are important. You know, and and, um, that is a, um, and you know, for, for me, for this particular thing, because of a lot of YAML, line positions, line numbers were actually quite important. Okay.
0: Okay. So, well, thank you very much for sharing that. We really appreciate it. And, uh, and please don't hesitate to email us and ask us for anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, I will. Uh, I will. You know, uh, uh, because, yeah, yeah, I put because that all the time.
0: Know, yeah. Because you never know, and, uh, and, and we always we, – we really like to hear about – I mean, even if we can't or shouldn't do what people want, uh, we do like to mm-hmm. know what it is that people – what people want. Well, thank you very much, uh, go for
1: yeah, – Thanks for inviting to me to do this.
0: this. And you, you've, I should mention, you're doing this sort of late at night. It's uh, I think it's about um, – uh, Twelve thirty in the morning where you are in Belgrade, right? So
1: it's now. 1:30, 1:37 one thirty, one thirty seven in the morning now.
0: Okay. <laughs> that's, well, that's, thank you very much for this. We really appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much uh, for being a lean pub author. It's it's always fantastic to see you. Okay. Thanks for way. thanks
1: for creating Lean Pub. You've made my work significantly easier.
0: Okay, thank you. And thanks as always to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please go to our website at leanpup.com. Thanks.